excellent. Where are you? Where do you live? Dawes Heath, which is near Benfleet in Essex. Oh, very nice. Yeah, I've spent so little time in Essex. I, I, I haven't stayed here a few times. No, it's Has knowing you... the, the Davis family are great because Ivor is a cousin of my great-grandma Lily. It's just, it's amazing having a proper journalist on the family tree. And so, so context for the listener, we, I'm good to go if you are. Yeah, I'll just say, in, uh, hoping that I was not listening in, is that um, he's one of the great journalists. And uh, I've considered it a privilege to have been a teammate of his for many years. Well, I'm afraid Ivor Davis will be listening to this, which means that I can plug two of his books, The Beatles and Me on Tour, which is his big baby of the last... 10 years, I lapped it up in one sitting, Jelly Babies with a big reveal, because Ivor ghosted George Harrison's column. I know you were in the toy department, but Ivor, hard news journalism, crossing the Atlantic with the Beatles, and that book, The Beatles and Me on Tour, it's an historical document. Yeah, it's a superb insight into what was going on in the 60s, and um, Ivor was very privileged to be there. It was tremendous. And then... Um, for dessert, he covered the Manson family uh, murders. Yes, not much difference. No. <laughs> um, and there are many books on both the Beatles and the Mansons, but Ivor Davis has written two of the best on both topics. Now, Ivor and yourself, Uncle Norman Giller, uh, were colleagues at the Daily Express back in the days when it was brilliant. At what point did the Express start to turn into the rag that it is now? Well, can I just take it back a little bit earlier? I, Ivor and I were actually our paths crossed in the uh, mid-1950s when he was doing his national service. I took his job on the Stratford Express and Ivor used to drop in and um, and that's when we first met. So I, I would have been 16, 17 and I, Ivor was this old man of 21 and he was serving in the army doing his national service and uh, he had a very cushy job he was based on the embankment where he was the PA to uh, Roger Bannister, who was then an unknown uh, young athlete. He, he became famous um, about three years later, May the 6th, 1954, when he ran the first seven four-minute mile. And um, Ivor, by then, was um, working as a PR for um, Butlins in, in Clacton before setting off to uh, America in, in, I think it was 1960-61 time. He then became one of the premier journalists uh, on the West Coast with his lovely wife, Sally. Oh, he was so Sally. lovely. Yeah. Oh, she's and, and Ivor won't mind me saying this, she, she was a better writer than uh, Ivor. I think he probably knows. Um, Sally was also on TV. My grandma has the kind of glam that Sally Davis has and had. Yeah. Um, but Ivor is still plugging away. I don't know if he's... Have I asked him if he's written his memoir? Because he started uh, playing football as a Jewish boy, Jewish boys football, uh, in the 40s and 50s. Uh, well, and I so- used to report his games, and uh, I, I called him um, the dapper ball-playing left-winger when he was playing for Clapton, the spotted dog. And that's a nickname that stuck with him forever since between the two of us. I always say, how's the... The dapper ball player, Ivor Davis. <laughs> he's he, not is, so he still is dapper. And I remember because he was at my bar mitzvah and we went over to Ventura to see him and family. I think I was 10. And I've always got so much time for him. And when I said to him, Ivor, I'm working on this book, uh, he said, well, you must speak to Norman. Uh, he's written some books. 
And I'd just like to read all the books. Um, <laughs> no, that would be perverse because um, it would take 10 minutes. I did once read a list of all the countries that the journalist James Montague had gone to. And he said, yeah. have I really been to that many? Uh, you list all the books at normangillabooks.com, but also at the back of your latest book, uh, My 70 Years of Spurs Colon, A Long Walk Down White Hart Lane. Um, I will have to speak to Steve Perryman because I've got a book coming out next year. I looked at all the books you'd written and I thought, well, Uncle Norman hasn't written a book about the FA Youth Cup, but he will have stories about players who played in the Youth Cup because you yeah. must have remembered the year that the Youth Cup was first held, 1952. Oh, Steve and I were talking about that very subject just, just last week because we were talking about when he, he and Graeme Souness played together in the FA Youth Cup. And he has brought out his memoir, uh, and I spoke to the chap who co-authored it, and off the top of my head, I cannot remember the name. Adam Powley. It was Adam Powley, yes. It was either Martin or Adam. And I spoke to Adam about nine months ago, there are many Tottenham fans who speak out when things happen. In fact, this evening, Chris Paoros is at an event. Uh, we're talking on June the 10th. And she's talking about whose game is it anyway. And I'm sure you've bumped into Chris at one point or another. Yeah. yeah. A phenomenal advocate for not just lesbian and gay and other fans, but of Tottenham Hotspur. She's very visible. And the Tottenham Hotspur of today... I always call them not my Spurs. <laughs> Do you ever get this? When you're watching Spurs today, you think, oh, it's not Bill Nick's team. You, anybody who's followed Spurs as long as I have um, would, would always deny having any knowledge of them <laughs> because they've, they've given me so much anguish over the years. But uh, there have been many, many high, high points and um, it's the high, high points that I prefer to remember. And it was that double winning team of 60-61 under Bill Nick. Um, yeah, I, I, I used to think comfortably. I'll just do this off the top of my head. Brown, Baker, Henry, Blanche Lair, Norman, Mackay, Jones, dear Johnny White, Bobby Smith, Les Allen, the following season, Jimmy Greaves, and then, of course, the one and only Terry Dyson, <laughs> who, who used to um, swap shirts with uh, Terry Medwin, the, t the terrible Terrys. Do you remember uh. those? I do not, but I know of Terry Dyson, who is still with us. I bet he's going to enjoy the Euros. He's the son of a famous jockey, you know. Um, his, his dad was a famous jockey in, in, the, in the 1940s. The stories they could tell, and I'm sure he's disgusted at what's happening with horse racing at the moment. Horse racing is something that I... It's the same as Formula One. I respect it, and I like those who like it, but I prefer to devote my energies to round ball sports like football. Although, looking again at this list of um, 120 books? 114, don't exaggerate. Sorry, please. you'll get there soon enough. Um, when did you hand in the manuscript for this? Because this is um, a kind of greatest hits. This is like uh, buying the greatest hits of Eagles rather than just Hotel California. It took me 70 years to write. I yeah. mean, I, mean I, I started off with my first few of Tottenham, which was... Uh, as a, a 10-year-old boy at Charlton Athletic, when my my uncle, Roy, want, wanted me to become a Charlton Athletic supporter, and he took me to see them play Spurs, and he didn't know that I'd already been nobbled by my godfather, another uncle, Ed, Uncle Eddie from Edmonton, and, he, and he'd been telling me all about the push-and-run Spurs who, who just 
won the second division championship. And now I was seeing him for the first time at Charlton Athletic. And I always remember um, that in about the 20th minute, uh, Ted Ditchburn, the Tottenham goalkeeper, made an incredible save. He was Superman flying across his goal. And from that second on, I, I was not only a Ted Ditchburn fan, but um, I was also committed to Tottenham Hotspur. Now, I, no, I knew about Push and Run because Kenneth Wollstonehome wrote a book about the 1966 World Cup. And he references Alf Ramsey being the right back, the recipient of the Ted Ditchburn passes. So instead of bunging it up long, it was rolled out to the right in the way that it is today. And as you note in the Arthur Rowe chapter, I used to tell the players to push the ball to a teammate and then run into space. It was like a wall pass. And there were lots of triangles involved. Um, And in fact, the son of, oh gosh, whose son was it? Who was, it was Arthur Rowe's son who said there, yeah, you go on about the Hungarians, but it was my dad who invented modern football. Is there a strong Uh, case? uh, Arthur Rowe was in Hungary um, in 1939 when war was declared. And he was about to become the coach of the Hungarian national team. But he had to come home because of the war. Mm. But by then, he'd already laid the foundation for what became the magical Magyars of the 1950s. So he and knew they, he knew Bella Gutman very well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, he, he, he knew the young Pushkas um, you know, when, when, when Ferenc Pushkas was just a teenager. And he came under Arthur's influence. And, and their whole creed was play the game simply, give and go, give and go, and then always on the floor. And uh, that was the, the push and run football that um, Arthur then introduced to Spurs in 1949 when he joined them from Chelmsford City. And uh, the rest is history. I mean, they, they, they won back to back the second division championship and the league championship. And it was with this beautiful style where they played in triangles. And um, they used to always make sure that the first thing they concentrated on was accuracy. And they had a a ball playing midfielder called Eddie Bailey, who was um, a cockney man from Clapton. And uh, he, he could land a ball on a handkerchief from 40 yards. And it was his passes that set up uh, the likes of Len Jukerman, known as the Duke, and Les Bennett. As, uh, they, they were the twin strikers, and uh, they, they scored 115 goals that season and um, between them. And uh, they, they walked away with the second division championship. And the following season, all the critics said that their playground sort of football, this, this um, war passing, as you called it, that uh, that would be exposed. But instead of um, falling apart, as, as all the critics thought, they, they um, washed away with the, uh, the title at the first time of asking. And it helped, of course, that the year ended in one. It, but they all started in um, 1901 when uh, Tottenham won the FA Cup, when uh, they had a, a, a Scot called John Cameron, who was the first to introduce on-the-ground passing to Tottenham. And he was the player manager, 29 years old player manager of the Tottenham team that won the FA Cup when they were in the Southern League. Yeah. Which is the only time it's ever been done. In 1920-21, they won the FA Cup final at Stamford Bridge in, in a rainstorm in front of George V. 
and um, they won that 1-0. So that's 1901, 1921. In 1951, they won the League Championship. 1960-61, they won the double, which is the League Championship and the FA Cup. Um, 71, they were runners-up to Arsenal in the league, but, but they won the League Cup. In 1980-81, they, they beat Manchester City in that memorable match when Ricky Villa scored that fantastic goal when he beat six City players in, in a dazzling run before popping the ball into the net. But um, 1991, they won the FA Cup under Terry Venables against Nottingham Forest, um, the famous match in which Gazza got himself injured and carried off. Uh, but and since then, it's, it's been very poor pickings. Well, in, in, I suppose in 2021, firing Jose Mourinho who was only brought in, I am positive, for the Amazon documentary. The Josie show, because, um, he, I mean, he loved the camera, didn't he? Oh, the camera loves him. He's the ultimate digital yeah. era manager. And I think the people who come after him, the technicians, um, we're yet to see a really passionate technician, because Tuchel, Guardiola to an extent, but Nogglesman, Tuchel, Flick, um, they're all yeah. tacticians. Who Brendan... God bless Brendan. I thought he'd be a Tottenham manager one day, but he seems to look at Leicester nowadays. Brendan plays the Tottenham way, um, the simple game, and um, and it works for him. Um, I, I don't think now is a good time for anybody to be taken over at Tottenham. You know, I think it's going to take a couple of years to sort out the mess that uh, Marino has left. Yes, and we're talking again on June the 10th. The saga will run and run this summer. You've got Haaland, Sancho, Kane, it's the Lukaku a swathe of number nines trying to move around Europe while millions of people try to struggle to get vaccines and to get their lives back on track. Um, yes, it's surreal times, John. It's, um... Well, it's also a good time to pick any number of books by Uncle Norman Giller. Uh, there is one called How to Self-Publish, um, and it's never been easier. But what you've done for this book... Uh, is you've gone to Paul and Jane, as I have done with my book, and uh, they've said, yeah, 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 give it to us. Is this your first pitch book? No, I, I did one called um, The Alley Files, in which I um, offered a, the reader a ringside seat to everyone on Muhammad Ali's um, fights. Yes, as you and, say, uh, his fights, his foes, his feats, his fees, his fate. And what was different about that book to any other one written on Ali is, is I traced what happened to every one of his opponents. And the frightening fact is that um, 34 of his opponents predeceased him, not knowing their names. And, of course, Ali was in a terrible state at the end. It's not a good advert for boxing, I'm afraid, the, the book. I'm, I'm no fan of hitting. And my uncle Darrell boxed at my school, but by the time the 90s had rolled around, boxing had been removed from the curriculum and we played rugby a lot more. Um, but yeah, East London is York Hall. That's boxers' uh, paradise, and isn't there meant to be a, a fight this summer with Fury or Joshua? It, it's, it's fallen flat because of the legal problems with um, <coughs> Tony Wilder, the um, the American, who's um, threatened to sue um, Fury if he doesn't fight him, and so, and so they're, they're all set to fight in Saudi Arabia. But that, that that's fallen through. It'll probably take place next year, I would think. Yeah, who can say? Uh, also, looking at your boxing books, uh, Frank Bruno, who has been in the news in the last few years because of his... Is it bipolar? 
he's he always suffered from bipolar. I've, I've known Frank since he was 18, and um, I was his PR for 10 years. I've never, ever known a more dedicated sportsman in my life. I mean, he, he gave everything to make himself the, the champion that he eventually became. But um, unfortunately, he gets these periods of depression, and, um, and it's not not exclusive to boxers, of course. And um, but he's learned to climb above it. He's, mm. he's had his bad moments, but um, he, he's a great advert for what can be done with with the right um, uh, attitude of mind. And uh, he's he's conquering his demons, and I'm thrilled for him. And I'd, uh, these books, from Zero to Hero, Eye of the Tiger, and of course Noah Amin. And I can't help but just go hee 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 after that. What is it like being around a laugh like that? It must just brighten your day. Frank um, was, was managed by Terry Lawless, who was my, my best friend. And uh, Terry and I were working on him, and, and I was giving Frank an image. And I always, always said, you know, you've got to be a gentleman in the ring. And I don't know if you remember his early fights, he used to stand to attention while his opponents were being counted out. But the, the one thing we were worried about, at the end of every sentence, he used to say, you know, you know, you know, you know. And uh, we said, Frank, you've got to stop, you know, you, you're going to be interviewed on television. You, you can't keep saying you know. And he went away, being the conscientious boy he was, he really worked at it. And he came into the gymnasium one, one morning, smiling. He said, I've conquered it, I've conquered it. He said, I don't say you know at the end of every sentence, you know what I mean? <laughs> And, and from from you know he went to know what I mean. Genius. But uh, but it, be, it became a, a good catchphrase for him. No, no, I mean Harry. No, I mean Harry. Harry Carpenter. Um, yes, yeah, no. boxing. Matt Dickinson has written pieces recently in the Times about how I think we're coming to the end of boxing. But God bless Eddie Hearn. He knows how to promote. Um, you well, what's Barry Hearn really like? But Barry um, first appeared on the scene um, when. Um, he, he used to work with Terry Lawless for, for about, worked with him about six months, picked his brains very cleverly, and then went off on his own. And uh, he's done a fantastic job. Started off with his snooker mm-hmm. in, in, with, with Steve Davis. But um, he's, he's a master organiser, is Barry. And his son, Eddie, of course, is uh, taken after him. And, uh, and good luck to them. I mean, uh, I, I, I think that um, they've... It's been good for boxing and good for boxers because they've, they've really got them really proper wages, the wages they deserve. But the hypocrite that I am, I, I, I agree with what you said about um, Mike Dickinson saying that you know boxing you know, could be coming to an end. I, th- I think it should be outlawed. It's, uh, all, all the boxers I used to write about in, in the 60s and 70s, when I meet them now, if they're still alive... They, they don't know me from Adam. They mm. don't know who they are. It's just a, a savage sport, and uh, the, the sooner it's banned, the better. Yeah. Although with sprinting, there are all kinds of drugs and footwear that um, uh, that wreck the sport, and then cycling the same. What is true? My, my first love, um, Johnny, was was athletics. I, I was an athletics nutter. In fact, my, the first book I ever wrote was as a twelve-year-old. I wrote a book about the. 1952 Olympics, and if I could bore you and tell you all the, the gold medalists and the runners-up and things, the 1500 metres, for instance, um, it was run by one by a man from Luxembourg called Jose Bartel, and finishing in fourth place, and this in 1952 was a long-legged uh, British runner called Roger Bannister. 
two years later he became world famous of course well and, and famous in Britain because in those days not everyone had a television although it helped in 53 um, next year is the Platinum Jubilee celebration and there is a yeah, generation all... of Brits who remembered watching the coronation yeah it all started with, with the coronation that's, that's when we all got our televisions we, I remember we got ours from radio rentals for six and sixpence a week Lots of money. We had a a nine-inch screen. You'd turn the lights out and we'd all hunch around the uh, television watching the one channel the BBC had. God, because it was before ITV even. But but can I, before I lose the theme, um, can you let me go back to the Yes, 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 go ahead. That was was my first love and I was was a walking record book on athletics. No, no, I was reading the autobiography of a hammer thrower called Hal Connolly who was one of my idols because he had a withered arm and he won the um, gold medal in the 1952 and 1956 Olympics. Incredible hammer thrower. And I was reading his autobiography and he was talking about how he was sticking needles so many in his arm, so so often in his arms, he had nowhere left to stick it. And that every field event um, competitor was doing exactly the same thing. And from from then on, I, I went off sport. I went off the athletics. Don't believe any of the records that, that I see you know, nowadays. And they're very rarely clean. <clears throat> and it's so sad that, um, that it's the scientists and the laboratories are winning the gold medals. Well, you lived through the 80s with East Germany and the USSR. The East Germans won all the uh, swimming gold medals. Well, you had that weird sensation the other year where someone got a medal. Years and years. Was it Kelly Southerton? Years and years got an upgrade. But uh, we speak... A few weeks before, and this will go out around the time that, well, we don't know if it's going to go on, but it looks like the only way the Tokyo, the only reason for the Tokyo Olympics are going ahead are ka-ching, 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 because a lot of money has been invested into it. I'll be astonished if they go ahead. We'll move to the 60s, but amongst your um, bibliography are two books about Billy Wright, who was one of the first celebrity footballers, because he was not the breadwinner in that household, which amazes me. It's very rare uh, that, as a professional footballer, you aren't the big winner. Um, you've um, written a book with Vicky, his daughter, yep. and the official yep. biography, A Hero for All Seasons. Remember, Billy married Joy at the end of his career. So she, she, she was the breadwinner after. And then Billy became the top executive in television. So he, so he, he remained the breadwinner, really. Oh, I see. What but, did he produce or commission? He became um, head, head of um, sport for uh, Central Television in the Midlands. Oh. After he got sacked by Arsenal in 1966, he then went into television. Which is where you... You've also, like a Z-League figure, you've also been there uh, because you scripted This Is Your Life and there's a brilliant bit of the book where you publish a kind of um, reference sheet, uh, what do you call it, the dossier uh, for Bill Nick. Born in Scarborough, he would have turned 102 this year, a complete one-club man apart from one year at West Ham. And this is this is the man who, when I went to Spurs, I walked down Bill Nickerson Way to the West Upper. Uh, I would go to Spurs between 97 and 2003. I watched a lot of bad football and the odd moment of genius. Um, but Bill Nick is the one, um, along with his double winning side, on whose shoulders Daniel Levy and Joe Lewis very much sit. Did, did you um, walk you all past Bill's house, which is at 71 Creighton Avenue, which is just down the road? 
and um, <clears throat> he almost used to sleep at the club. I mean, the, the, the most honest man ever crossed my path, Bill. I, I loved him. He, he couldn't tell a lie. If 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 um, he, he said no comment, you you, you knew the, the question you asked him. He he wouldn't commit himself to giving you a proper answer because he couldn't lie about it. There is a but, collection uh, collection of your interviews with him, Bill Nickerson revisited, and it's a chunky chapter in your book, My 70 Years of Spurs. But the team he built, um, in fact, I was talking about an hour ago to George Sefton, who is the Liverpool um, stadium announcer. And I said, isn't it amazing that Busby, Ferguson, Clough, Shankly, Bill Nick, there were no stars, the Guardiola, the star was the team. So this double winning team, although it had White and Greaves and Mackay, it could work without any of them because the system was so magical. It's not only the system, it's also the attitude of the players, Johnny. Uh, don't, don't forget, um, these were um, all, all post-war boys who had the discipline to not, not show off. I mean, if you saw Jimmy Green score a goal, for instance, he'd, he'd go past four players, pass the ball into the net, and then trundle back to the... Of the uh, centre circle without throwing his arms around or, or saying what a wonderful player I am he let, he let his football do the talking and this was the same with all the, 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 the teams at the time you, di- you didn't get show-offs and uh, exhibitionists I mean n- n- now when they score a goal um, they, they think that London played him they want, they want to do a full, full act yeah because the there's 24 cameras on them at all times although um, well you know Jimmy Greaves better than most, and he probably is the finest number nine that England has ever produced. He wasn't number nine if he used to play eight, eight or ten. Oh, right. Oh, but, so, yeah. So, right. So he was the uh, finest uh, inside forward. But he scored so many goals that I've always thought he was, had been a centre forward. So that's even more well, incredible. Uh, he scored 357 first division goals, which is a record that will always stand <clears throat> because the old first division doesn't exist anymore. Mm. So he scored three. 57 first division goals he scored 220 goals for for Tottenham I would say that uh, at least half of them would be called spectacular today he he was a master of positioning and uh, an absolute genius of putting the final touch to movements he he knew where to be when to be and and, um, what to do once he had his chance he very rarely missed an opportunity I would think you could add 20 goals that were flagged offside by linesmen. His movement was too quick for them. So he was a player ahead of his time? Oh, without question. Um, But he he was the greatest British goal scorer of all time, or the greatest British footballer of all time. For for my money, was George Best. I I love watching George, and um, he, he was an absolute genius. Unfortunately, he was born too good looking and um, mm. he spent a lot of his energy um, in bedroom activities. Yes, as I, as I said the other day, imagine what would have happened if he hadn't bedded all those models. Imagine how good he could have been. Um, had he been ugly? Oh, yeah, well, he certainly wouldn't have Yes, got those girls had he been ugly. Uh, you, as the chief football writer at The Express, you would have moved in some amazing press boxes. We are celebrating this year the 90th birthday of Brian Glanville. 
after whom the football library is named. At the moment, the football library is a mind palace. It's got all the books, all programmes and magazines and VHSs. Um, but it's Brian who really kicked football reporting into the age of football criticism. Brian is a doyen of football writers, without question. Yeah. Have, have, have you interviewed him? Not, no. Well, the only reason I'm interviewing you is to build up to him. I've had about 150 and I think I can only interview David Goldblatt, Simon Cooper, Brian Glanville after I've interviewed everyone else. So I've spoken to Paddy Barkley, Johnny Northcroft, uh, yourself, so many print journalists, not that many tabloid journalists. I'd love to speak to someone like Martin Samuel, who is one of the most garlanded critics. And then you've got the, bo- the reporters on the beat like David Conn, Danny Taylor, Ollie Kay. But when you were reporting in the 60s and 70s, dictating copy over... You would have shared it with like, Ian Waldridge, um, David well, Lacey. Well, Desmond Hackett was the... Des Hackett, um, yeah. Express then. But the, the major difference uh, back, back in the 50s and 60s was that uh, it was all pre-breatheriser. <clears throat> and uh, these wonderful, gifted writers like Peter Wilson, Desmond Hackett, Tom Phillips, Geoffrey Green, and every one of them, could polish off a bottle of wine during the day and then move on to the hard stuff. God, God knows how we used to get the papers out in those days because they were really heavy drinkers. Mm. And it was not only the street of ink, but the street of drink, uh, Fleet Street, back in those days. Well, in this library, if there was a, a gentleman wanting to come in to peruse all of these old kind of columns, like the Hugh McIlvanny kind of journalist... I, I stopped drinking with Jimmy Greaves on February the 20th, 1978, when Jimmy, as you probably know, was a helpless alcoholic then, and uh, I said to Jim, I was writing his book called This One's On Me, and I said, uh, Jim, it's his 38th birthday, and I, and I, I toasted him with coffee, I said, Jim, let's go and get sober out of our minds. He said, what a good toast, and neither of us have had a, a drop since. That was February the 20th, 1978. And Jimmy then reinvented himself as an incredible uh, after-dinner speaker and television presenter. But one of the most incredible people ever to, ever, ever to um, come into my company. And I, I'm sure that, obviously it's not going to be for many years, although he is horribly ill, but when the clip shows come round to remind people what a great TV presenter Jim was, Ian St John was the straight man, he was the Ernie yep. Wise... And I think, yeah. I hope you know where the, I'm going with this. Jimmy Greaves was very much the Eric Morecambe of this partnership. You've got to tell me the Eric Morecambe, Osvaldo Aldiles story, because it's unreal. Well, I, I used to, Eric and I were very good pals, because it, uh, mainly through football, because um, he, he was a Luton Town director. And uh, I used to write a regular column with him called, um, it, was, it was a play on, on, on Four minutes Four Minute Smile, that was it. We used to call it the Four Minute Smile. And he, he used to suggest the topic, and off we'd go. And he, he said, well, let, let's do something about those two Argies who are coming over. I said, well, which two Argies are those? He said, he said uh, Harry Haslam, who, who had been manager at Luton Town, was then at Sheffield United, he said he's told me that they're coming to, to Tottenham. I said, are you sure? And I thought he was pulling my leg. I then did make some inquiries, and, and I found out that Harry Haslam had been offered Osvaldo Ardiles and Ricky Villa, and um, Sheffield United couldn't afford it. And so he tipped off his 
his best friend in football, Bill Nicholson, who was then consultant at Tottenham. Bill Nicholson told Keith Birkinshaw. Keith Birkinshaw made a secret dash to Argentina and signed up these two World Cup stars from the from the nineteen seventy eight World Cup. And that's how all the, the foreign imports started. Yeah, it was that year, 78. I often think, when did modern football begin? And you can go back to 53 or 61 with the maximum wage being abolished. Um, but it really is 78. In this country, letting well, in when, a vast a, array of foreign talent. The PFA, the Professional Footballers Association, had, had always put the block on it. And uh, they lifted the ban in 1978. And uh, look at us now. I've we really struggle to find uh, British-born players in our teams, in, in our top teams. Well, 10 years ago that was the case, but now it's a wealth of talent. And this Euros, we were speaking before, but this will come out after the Euros. It's our best chance in 25 years since uh, you call him a Marx brother who could juggle a football uh, was the mainstay of the midfield. And we've spoken about Greaves and Best. Would you put Paul Gascoigne in their company? Um, on ability, yes. Unfortunately, on concentration, no. He, he had the concentration of a flea. Could he play the game? And, but he was always looking to entertain and uh, he couldn't be disciplined. I mean, the, the, the wall football that we talk about, the, um, the wall passes, you know, he, he wouldn't do that. He, he always had to beat the man then go back and beat him again. Mm. Nutmeg, three players... He was always the, the entertainer, but what a player, but what a nutcase. I don't know if you know, on the roof of one of the stands at White Hart Lane, there's a massive gold cockerel. Yes. And when they brought, they brought it down to, to um, uh, re- replenish it, and uh, they found it was full, full of pellet marks, and Paul had been, had been taking an air gun to it and trying to shoot it down off the stand. Mm. He also turned up at training once at um, Chesham, where they trained, and uh, he, he came in on an ostrich. Yeah. <laughs> he borrowed from a local zoo. I mean, a, t- a total lovable nutcase. Indeed. He, I mean, he, he, he's just, just as bad these days. If, if you meet him, you know, you, you don't know whether he's telling you a pack of porkies or, or he's going to steal something from your pocket or... He's always up to tricks. Uh, now, I, I saw him speak because of that film that was made about his life. Uh, he was there, Henry Winter, Stuart Pearce was there as well. And just the love in that room for Paul Gascoigne, not for Gazza, which is just the celebrity, but Paul Gascoigne. Everybody loves Paul. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you were also delighted, you know, because he was at death's door because he was drinking, but uh, he managed to beat it, which is unbelievable. Um, another Tottenham legend and these are legends